0: Welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. In our last episode, we mentioned the appearance of the Republican Attorneys General Association or RAGA in the big US youth climate case Juliana versus United States. Today, I want to dig into that organization a bit more and some other organizations that like to party with it, with one of the foremost experts on this topic, Lisa Graves.
1: My name is Lisa Graves, and I'm the executive director of True North Research, which is a watchdog group uh, that focuses on corporate uh, distortion of American democracy. And I previously led the Center for Media and Democracy. I'm Still the president of the board over there, and I've previously been deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Policy at the U.S. Department of Justice, and the chief counsel for nominations for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, the deputy chief of the Article Three Division of the U.S. Courts, the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, and I was the senior legislative strategist for the ACLU on national security issues. So I am a researcher and a writer and uh, someone who has looked deeply into some of these Trump groups or right-wing groups that have been advancing pretty extreme agenda in a lot of different ways, both federally and in the states.
0: Lisa connects the dots on right-wing extremism and climate better than pretty much anyone I've ever talked to. So I'm really excited to bring you this interview today. I talked to Lisa last year in the process of working on the second season of the show This Land, which I highly recommend you check out if you haven't already. It follows a series of constitutional challenges to the Indian Child Welfare Act, which has some surprising backers. And yeah, there is an oil and gas connection. At any rate, Lisa has spent a lot of time looking at some of the specific lawyers and right-wing funders involved in that, many of whom are the very same folks fighting against climate action. That includes not just RAGA, but also the various Koch-funded organizations like the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute and the Goldwater Institute, as well as a lesser-known but equally powerful family foundation, the Bradley Foundation. It's a lot to unpack, and Lisa blew my mind in ways that I'm still thinking about a year later. That conversation is coming up right after this quick break. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to happen. <laughs> but one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. I know what you're thinking, laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze eco sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring. There's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean, it smells great, I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, Free of bleach and dyes so it's perfect for every load you'll never run out of detergent again thanks to earth breezes easy flexible subscription you can adjust pause or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties and you save a whopping 40 percent when you subscribe plus shipping is always free and eco sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space it also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over a hundred million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Forty four zero. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. I'm curious to hear a little bit about your work on Goldwater in particular, and, and what their big kind of driving force has seemed to be in in recent years.
1: I had done a significant report about the Goldwater Institute in 2013 to, you know, examine its activities, its funding its influence on Arizona law, how it was able to use Arizona's weak laws on lobby disclosure to have an enormous effect on the legislature that, you know, was not entirely visible to ordinary people, and how it was advancing Charles Koch's agenda. Charles Koch, in many ways, has used Alec to operationalize his ideas at the state level, and Goldwater work to advance um, those ideas in the state legislature to push those proposals, in addition to um, expanding the litigation operations under under Bullock, um, who's obviously now on the state Supreme Court.
0: That would be Clint Bullock. He's an Arizona Supreme Court justice today, but he built his reputation for decades as a public interest litigator for various conservative causes, particularly
1: against affirmative action and for school choice. So I've I've looked at them, and I think it's, it's interesting because there appear to be a confluence of interests.
0: Lisa said she saw this confluence of interests in the Indian Child Welfare Act cases that Goldwater started to bring beginning in 2015. Again, go and listen to this land for that whole wild story. But to sum it up... The primary argument being used in those cases is that the definition of Indian is race-based and therefore violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. That sort of argument has been a key part of the quote-unquote reverse discrimination argument for conservative lawyers arguing against various civil rights laws for decades. And Clint Bullock, an early acolyte of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, has been pushing that argument for decades.
1: There is this component obviously on the surface of the cases involving claims about equal protection or about race specific remedies and obviously Clarence Thomas you know has made assertions about that in his opinions related to this area of the law but I think it's about more than race. I think it's about possibly reshaping the law surrounding the relationship between the United States and tribes and sort of using this particular law as a way to perhaps change dramatically other laws that may may well be implicated. And, and the ones that are, are most concerned to me of those other legal areas are, you know, the relationship between the federal government and the tribes and sovereignty issues involving oil and leasing and and that sort of thing. I just wonder, although I don't know, but I wonder whether given some of the players, there is ultimately an oil and gas angle here.
0: That's something that we've been looking at too. The uh, first attorney general to sign on was in Texas. And The Texas AG's office has been very friendly to oil and gas for a long time. (laughs) And then, you know, the fact that Gibson Dunn is involved, too, and the Koch brothers kind of tangentially. It seems like there's this financial motive from the oil and gas folks that dovetails with some, like, weird racial ideology.
1: So you have this attorney general in a state that is you know, particularly friendly and warm to Coke and to the other oil and refinery industries. And it has very, very few tribes, tribal holdings in the state. But also it's the case that, you know, something has happened over the last 20 years. And I had looked at this back when I was working on the Senate Judiciary Committee in terms of this, the rise of RAGA, the Republican Attorneys General Association, where we know that it's a pay-to-play operation. We know that it's, it's uh, it has had enormously distorting effect on U.S. law. It provides a mechanism for corporations to pass money through to help attorneys general in ways that they would not be able to individually solicit for their own campaigns, given their role, their regulatory role over those very industries. Mm. Um, and that's been going on since RAGA was created back more than 20 years ago now, and it has accelerated under some of the attorneys general who have uh, led it like Scott Pruitt was, who was, you know, in my view, another corrupt individual, someone who was lax uh, on ethical rules, to say the least, and who was willing to do the bidding of the oil industry in attacking climate legislation and climate rules, even the very modest CPP, the Clean Power Plan rules, to advance the interests of the funders of Raga. And I say that knowing that Oklahoma obviously has, you know, a huge amount of industry involved, or you know, has has long relationships with um, these the oil industry. It even has an oil, you know, a replica. I think of an of an oil well on the Capitol grounds. And so I know that it's it's a part of that state's history. But we do know that Raga is a pay-to-play operation. These mm-hmm. Republican attorneys general behave. In general, they are operating, most often we've seen at the behest of the industries that they're soliciting funds for to fund Raga. That's interesting. Beyond Raga's funding, the corporate funders of Raga, we know that it now is receiving a substantial amount of money from one of the emerging big dark money operations, which is Leonard Leo's operation, which was funded through a group that's now defunct that has subsequently, you know, basically been rebranded or renamed as Leo has has re-launched his his operations after it was exposed by the Washington Post last year. Mm. So Raga now is um, not just a recipient of donations from big oil and and big huge corporations, but it's also a major recipient of funds in in which the source is completely unknown to anyone other than the person raising the money, Leonard Leo and his his group of operatives.
0: That would be former head of the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo. The Federalist Society is credited with getting hundreds of conservative judges appointed over the past couple of decades and picking the Supreme Court choices of any Republican president in that same time frame. Leo left the Federalist Society and started a new organization, CRC Advisors, in 2020. They have continued that work. One of the first projects he announced under CRC was $10 million in funding for issue advocacy campaigning around, you guessed it, judgeships in 2020.
1: And they've particularly targeted states and state AG's offices to advance Leonard's longer term agenda, which he described to the Council on National Policy in a speech to CNP last year. That, his, that America stands at the precipice of what he called the revival of what he described as the, quote, structural constitution. And he told the CNP audience that no one alive in that room had seen the type of legal revolution that America was about to see based on the appointments to the Supreme Court and other courts to revive this so-called structural constitution to the law as it existed pre-New Deal. And, you know, that affects a whole host of laws. It affects civil rights laws, it, 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 will, it will affect labor laws and labor rights, environmental regulation, and more. And it's an attempt, in my view, to really limit the ability of Congress to pass laws, to limit the ability of agencies to regulate corporations, and, and to, you know, sort of change the whole modern structure of Government basically, in terms of the administrative agencies, but also the rights of citizens and the relationships between the United States as a, as a government and other governments, which obviously would include tribal governments. You mentioned tribes in that speech, but it's an attempt by Leo and an assortment of lawyers who are elite lawyers like Paul Clement and others who have been, you know, advancing some of these um, ideas. Paul
0: Clement is another lawyer involved in the Indian Child Welfare Act cases, but he's also been involved in a variety of pipeline disputes. And he was the Solicitor General of the United States under Bush. He's also a Supreme Court regular, with more Supreme Court appearances under his belt than any attorney currently practicing.
1: And now they have a Supreme Court that's increasingly receptive to what I consider to be an extreme radical, reactionary agenda to change our rights and ch- and limit our powers and our democracy through our representatives in ways that serve a, a very elite agenda, the agenda of the people who fund Leonard Leo and Leo's operations and fund the RAGA, the Republican Attorney General's Association, and have been really attempting to work a legal revolution through offices that we would otherwise consider to be independent. It would be nice to have attorneys general of states who were not so captive to advancing the interests of Charles Koch, but unfortunately, we are in an era in which those interests have been dominating. These uh, many of these state AGs, including the Attorney General of Texas, who's embroiled in other serious controversies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they've declared you know this war on the so-called administrative state. Obviously, there's roots of that in Reagan and some of the lawyers who were active then who became judges. And uh, some, of the, some of the people who are in the judiciary, like Silverman, who Paul Clement worked for and who Amy Coney Barrett clerked for, people who are in the judiciary who have been, you know, in my view, very partisan, very right-wing, you know, sort of politicians in robes who are attempting to restructure the modern American state through judicial rulings. And so Paul, Paul and I overlapped a bit when I was at the Justice Department. I was a career deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Policy, although I didn't work with him in the SG's office when he was coming in to take over that operation. But I was I was there for those first couple of months and um, obviously, you know, observed his litigation as a citizen, but also when I was on the Senate Judiciary Committee to see his efforts and the way he was trying to change, you know, the laws. And then, you know, his uh, work since the end of that administration through the Obama administration uh, in the private sector and the types of cases he's been involved in, including the attacks on the Affordable Care Act and this advance of sort of the supremacy of freedom of religion as a sword to strike down legislation and protections for you know people's health and equal protection.
0: I'm curious what you think about
1: his kind of
0: driving force as a person. What is his ideology?
1: Well, I mean, he to my in my view, he's an he's one of the you know doctrinaire ideologues mm-hmm. on the right. You know, he's part of sort of that movement, the Federal Society movement. Although I think that gives it some sort of populist veneer that's not real. It it's an effort to basically roll back most of the modern precedents in, you know, the the precedents that are Brown post and post Brown that that a lot of the sort of the Leo Contingent dislikes. They now, I guess, have refashioned themselves as originalists in asserting that Amy Coney Barrett is the you know most recent real originalist. When in fact, the reality is is that in my lifetime, if you look at the U.S. Supreme Court, there have only been four appointees by Democratic presidents and sixteen appointees that by Republican presidents, and that includes Rehnquist twice because it was two different seats. But you know, eighty percent of the, of the Supreme court has been appointed by Republicans and they just haven't been doctrinaire enough for these, you know, very elite reactionaries like Leonard Leo and Clement and others. Some many of whom were named on Trump's list or shortlist uh, for the Supreme court as Clement was. So I don't, I don't know him personally. I don't know what he's like personally. I, my, my personal view is, you know, everyone has a mom who loves them and friends who like them it's beside the point about whether they're fair or whether they have an agenda that actually would hurt the interests of most people. You know, I think that the lawyers who are part of RAGA, the attorneys general, like Pruitt, who are advancing these uh, sorts of attacks on, you know, really reasonable legislation, (laughs) legislation that's certainly within the power of Congress, like the CPP, these individuals, they dress in suits and ties, but they represent a pretty extreme ideology.
0: Lisa says that in recent years, that extreme ideology always seems to come back to carbon and whether or not to regulate it.
1: One of my primary concerns about Leo's structural revolution is that it it will be an attempt to use this so-called structural constitution to take away the power of Congress to regulate carbon. You know they they have a longer-standing attack on the existence of the EPA. Mm -hmm. We've documented. I helped document how um, Charles Koch opposed even the creation of an energy department in the United States. There shouldn't be any federal energy department. Some of these Koch-type groups and Leo groups, you know, have a hostility to the idea of there being these sorts of agencies, Mm -hmm. and they're they're I think mounting a structural attack on them, as well as you know ultimately a question of whether we're going to even have some of these agencies. As you know, there's been an attempt in a number of these presidential campaigns for Republicans to claim these are the five or four or three agencies they're going to eliminate, which, you know, inevitably include energy, the Energy Department, and perhaps the EPA.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Okay, so in terms of some of the other players, Bradley, you know, have been a big funder of Goldwater for a long time, Paul Clement's now on their board.
1: When I wrote the report on Goldwater in 2013, they were in the process of basically expanding their litigation arm, and they were marketing, and I I think that these documents are in the Bradley files, but they were, you know, at the time, basically trying to become the litigation force for the State Policy Network groups across the country.
0: The State Policy Network is a group of organizations funded by the Koch Network that takes pro corporate sample legislation from the American Legislative Exchange Council or Alec and works to get it passed in state legislatures. Several years ago, Goldwater launched its litigation center in Arizona under Clint Bullock's leadership with the idea of being the litigator for all of these state policy initiatives.
1: They were trying to do that and then have that be a, you know, a fundraising basis for them and they would help coordinate with these other places and obviously Clint you know, had a, a longstanding record as a litigator, you know, in attacking affirmative action and from mm-hmm. my perspective, civil rights laws. And so they they had a team that they put in place that felt that they could, you know, market beyond Arizona. But their real objective is structural litigation. Like they're they're not just taking pro bono cases for the sake of taking pro bono cases. Their objective is structural change.
0: Structural change meaning fundamentally changing the law or government and how it works and what it's allowed to do.
1: I think even though we may not know definitively the objective of you know, either Clint Bullock and his successors at, at Goldwater or Paul Clement, one thing that is clear in their pattern of the litigation that they've engaged in is that they do it to advance structural change. They're using litigation as part of a strategy for changing right. the law. Like, for example, with the Goldwater litigation on on licensure, it's actually a much broader attack on the idea that government should be having licenses for right. people in a whole a host of areas where people would be demonstrably unsafe if these issues weren't regulated from a health and safety standpoint. And we can see that in the way some of these groups, although I don't know that what Clement's position has been on COVID, but what we've seen through the ALEC groups and the SPN groups has been... This, you know, push for improvident reopening. This attack on, you know, close, yeah, on closing uh, businesses to protect public health in this pandemic. So they're not actually that interested in public health, you know.
0: Right. They're interested in
1: money and the economy, and that is a persistent driver of their agenda. Um, certainly, is a driver of the Goldwater Institute's litigation agenda overall is this notion that regulation is somehow incompatible with what they describe as this pre-market, which is this sort of, in their fantasy, ideal world, one in which we don't have these regulations. Right. And companies can do what they want, and the rich can do what they want. Bradley is interesting, obviously. It's, it's sort of zombie money in the sense that there's no family member left on that board. And right. the super wealthy people... Uh, like Pope, Art Pope, and uh, Diane Hendricks who are major GOP donors, and you know Pope has long-standing ties to you know he's been on AFP's board for a long long time or one of the AFP operations board um, so you have these billionaires who are basically directing the the hundreds of millions of dollars of a, of other you know, industrialists to advance, uh, these, you know, some of these pretty extreme, uh, extremely reactionary groups, Mm -hmm. but Searle, so the Bradley brothers were super anti-labor, you know, they were, you know, sort of in my view, bad guys, uh, in a lot of ways. And now their money is continuing to do that bad, that badness. Searle, you know, is the, um, is that pharmaceutical fortune, Right, uh, that I think I think uh, I don't know that they made as much money on aspartame, but aspartame was one of their products mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. ultimately. But Searle, um, you know, Searle is deeply embedded in um, sort of that right wing infrastructure.
0: Searle is the Searle Freedom Trust. Its president and CEO, Kim Dennis, also heads up. A giant pot of dark money that the Cokes put together after the 2010 Supreme Court case, Citizens United, made anonymous political donations legal for corporations.
1: At one point, I actually wondered whether they were operating out of the American Enterprise <laughs> Institute, just qua AEI, but they, they have an address, obviously, that's that's in Chicago or something for Searle Freedom Trust, but they're fully embedded in advancing this uh, pretty extreme extremely reactionary set of legal goals to, you know, turn back the clock a century in the words of, uh, of Leonard Leo.
0: Yeah, it does. It's like, yes. I mean, that seems so clear that it's like, they really, really do want to live in, like the night, you know, yeah, pre-New Deal,
1: basically. (laughs) (laughs) The the era of Robert Barron is their glory era. And so, I mean, I think it does raise the question about, you know, a a rise of these sort of, sort of a Lochner, a new Lochner, 21st century Lochner court.
0: Lochner was a really important early labor case. It happened in 1905. It's called Lochner versus New York. And basically what happened was that New York State had passed a law limiting the amount of hours that bakers could work every week. So it was capped at 60 hours a week. And a guy named Lochner, who owned a bakery, got caught allowing an employee to work additional hours. He was fined and actually thrown in jail over this. And so he sued and said that this law was totally unfair and ridiculous and that it was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court agreed, and that decision ushered in what's called the Lochner Era, which effectively rolled back a lot of the progressive reforms around both labor and various environmental issues, um, which, you know, was really only 20, 30 years after the very first regulations had even been passed on industry. So it was sort of the first attempt to roll back regulation. Like a lot of other folks who've been watching the slow and steady corporate capture of the U.S. judiciary over the years, Lisa Graves thinks the goal right now is to usher in another Lochner era, to take us back to the days when industry wasn't regulated at all.
1: That's going to be inventing theories that they claim are structurally, you know, structural constitutionalism Mm -hmm. to strike down our power as a people through our representatives to regulate these corporations. And at, at a time when uh, regulating carbon corporations is vital to our survival yeah. as a you know people, human beings on this planet. And so um, I, I know that there are a lot of regulations and rules that would fall if they're successful in implementing this so-called structural constitution. But I think that it's clear to me that since some of the driving funders um of some of the main groups are funded by oil and gas that that's got to be part of the objective yeah so our ability to regulate those industries and particularly carbon carbon is job one for coke industries and for the coke operations yeah and um when they're involved in something, it's you know a lot of it ultimately involves making sure carbon is protected from regulation limiting regulation of carbon, yeah, I know it's um. It's funny too, I think people
0: don't necessarily understand and and this is like the thing I loved about Cokeland too was like just um, that there it's almost like there's nothing too small or petty or seemingly unrelated for the yeah. Cokes to go after. <laughs> you know yeah. it's like it, it can be like the smallest little wind project in like rural Ohio, and they will like. Scorched earth, burn it down,
1: you know? <laughs> yeah, like what happened in I was it Tennessee when they attacked the, like um, the, the mass transit, it's like, they're involved in trying to stop mass transit in, in a town. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was a major Coke operation to block, to block uh, expanded mass transit. And you just, you know, it just, it just seems so petty and, and crazy in a way, like mm-hmm. how much money do they actually lose? Does yeah. the, does the Coke board actually lose when there's a, a bus system, you know, or, you know, even like, like it just, it, it, but it, they, they claim it's all a matter of principle, but I think Chris's book showed how it's like, not quote, just principle. It really is about, about their like basically endless revenue Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's never enough of their endless revenue, basically. Right. Right. They're yeah. There- you know, there's never, like, anything that uh, that limits them is, is somehow an attack or it limits, like, regulates that industry is somehow an attack on them when it's actually, you know, good public policy that advances the public good and that allows people, you know, to commute or, you know, like, it's, mm-hmm. it's just absurd the type, the number of things they've tried to do, including... You know, in Colorado, those efforts to take over those school districts, mm-hmm. uh, as AFP try to push through these candidates who were advancing this attack, and and the thing for me in looking at the Kochs and having looked at them for so long now, and Charles, you know, in particular, who's the, who was the real driver, even you know, uh, with David around, is how much of his ideology from the 1960s and early 70s is just so fixed. Yeah, he's you know he's been very flexible in a sense, in terms of trying new things, like, you know, he's really someone who has re-engineered America just to try to remake it in his own image, uh, in ways that have, you know, deeply harmed our, uh, democracy and our economy and, and equality and the opportunity for, um, you know, equal, um, you know, equal opportunity in the U.S., but he his ideas like the hostility to public schools the idea of public schools like that's an early idea of his this mm-hmm. that he just embraced and he's never given up on the idea of hostility to their being energy regulation that's like he's in his early 30s and mm-hmm. now he's you know much older and he's you know still pushing that agenda he's someone who in some ways hasn't changed very much at all yeah in terms of this very unyielding view of the world which you know, that freedom school operation that that really shaped him, that Bob Lefebvre operation in the early Mm sixties, you know, that guy was an anarcho-capitalist. He described himself as an an autarchist because they didn't want to say anarchist, Mm -hmm. but that was a view that the role of government uh, should, is limited to protecting property really. Right. And that government should get out of the way of corporations and that freedom means that corporations and individuals can do whatever they want. Yeah. And, and that included an attack on the very notion of public schools.
0: This is why you'll see all the same organizations that attack climate policy attacking the public school system as well. It's part of a broader move to privatize everything, to really bake in this idea that everybody gets to choose everything for themselves and there's no government involvement in any of it.
1: Public education was one of the great innovations of America that other countries, you know, not everyone, but, you know, sought to aspire toward and, not, that's not to say that schools are perfect. You know, schools face a lot of challenges because our our society faces a lot of challenges and mm-hmm. and people face a lot of economic challenges that then affect, you know, your your chances in school in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, do you have a place you can do homework? Do you, right. do you have a computer? Do you have the internet? Like there's like the economy affects um, our education. But the right. fact is that I, I've, I've just been, that's one of the things that has so stunned me uh, is the, the level of hostility to the idea of public education, yeah, um, and public highways. I did a deep dive. Um, we never published it because it didn't it didn't end up happening. But like I did a deep dive into one of the main Coke guys who was in the Trump administration um, on um, on highways and infrastructure. Mm. And that guy was basically saying, you know, we shouldn't have public roads at all. And, um, and they, you know, oh. the coast have been behind a lot of the polling efforts, you know, pushing toll highways. And in fact, they profit from toll highways. We just, we just haven't just, I just never published this research yet, but they, you know, they, 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 they are one of the culprits behind this other, obviously other companies have benefited enormously like Centra and, and, uh, one of the companies in, in, uh, Australia. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that they've been behind this and, and their main Coke operative who landed in the Trump administration in charge of infrastructure for a while is on record We found saying, you know, his ideal, the ideal world is that basically you're told on every street corner electronically. Wow. You know, so, I mean, their view of America is like, is really a dystopia. The, You know, no public schools, every road is private basically and you're taxed by a corporation, a corporate tax, basically a toll Mm -hmm. every time you drive your car. But damn it, we're not going to regulate those industries. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to limit the polluters. Like, how dare we? But they want to basically have corporate taxes. But they
0: want to tax the
1: shit out of individuals. Yeah. And, they, and it won't wow. be called a tax. It's a toll, right? It's not a tax. <laughs> it's a toll. But that, and that toll is completely set by them with no democratic accountability. And their claim is, well, the democratic accountability is you just use it or you don't. Which, Ugh. you know, suggests that everyone has some sort of, you know, cash reservoir. <laughs> yeah. To just be told to death by corporations, you know, but like that was a shocking quote like who who has that as their fantasy oh the co cooperative at the white house in charge of infrastructure that's his fantasy we're told we our cars are tolled on every corner we pass and for a while they couldn't even achieve it right because we didn't have the electronic capacity so mm-hmm. the tolls were these you know clunky tolls where everyone complains when they go through a toll in illinois or right. whatever they think they're paying money to the to the state no that money's going to private corporations The state is just administering it. But, you know, so they couldn't achieve their their objective because they didn't have the internet that we have now. But that guy literally was like, hey, the great, the ideal scenario is, yeah, wherever you drive, we're collecting a toll.
0: Hmm.
1: And it's not the government connecting that toll to fund schools, it's corporations. Wow. Anyway, they have great silk suits and great silk ties and they look like, you know, upstanding normal individuals, but their agenda of many of these guys, including Charles Koch, is truly extreme.
0: So you can imagine me sitting in front of a giant murder wall pinning threads together after this conversation. (laughs) Go check out Lisa online. Her research firm is True North Research and she's still on the board of the Center for Media and Democracy which does incredible work a lot of the bradley documents that were leaked a few years ago have been analyzed and organized by CMD and you can find that work online at exposed by CMD I also want to give a shout out to Documented and the reporters there, Nick Sergey and Jamie Corey, who've done some absolutely phenomenal work on Raga and Coke Network and Alec and Bradley. Go check them out. They're online at Documented.net. They've put together a tremendous resource there. Highly, highly recommend checking that out. Okay, that's it for this episode. Next time you hear from me, it will be for a new season we're going to take drilled back to being a seasonal show. If you would like to continue to get weekly episodes and bonus content, please sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com/drilled. Otherwise, we'll be back March 4th with part 2 of our season on the gas industry. This one is called The New Climate Villains, and we're tackling how the gas industry is adjusting to its new role as part of the climate problem after pretty successfully marketing itself as part of the solution for decades. Come back for that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.